going to do something a little different. We've done question box sermons before where you have a chance to ask questions and there have been papers out and we've got some really good ones. But I wanted to invite Susan and I think I told you I would have invited that Joseph Rivers but he was off getting awards and being given accolades for his amazing composition work. So what we've done, we've got about... 16 questions. Some of them belong together. And I invited Susan because, A, you don't get to hear what she says and thinks often enough. And as Bill let us know, we are a healthy enough congregation that ministry is a broad thing. It's not about the minister. And Susan does an astonishing ministry downstairs and also up here, but not often enough up here. And she has a perspective to remind us, uh, that's a good question, and here's how it sounds in my ears or in my bailiwick of the church. It's, it's uh, echoes in a different way. So we have written questions, as well as we'll come to some that later on Susan put out on Facebook, on her Facebook. I, I put it out on the church Facebook page too. So we have people from outside who are UU and friends who pose their questions. Anything you want to add before we start? I was here all weekend. Oh yeah. Susan was here all weekend. (laughs) (laughs) And that's a lesson. It becomes uh, invisible in some way. We're so familiar. So the very first question is, does the architecture of this church have a special meaning? And that's something for our 50th anniversary to answer, but I will tell you if you are brand new, Ron Dursmith was the architect, and he was nationally known, and he's known, so uh, I I double-checked before I answered this question and saw a funny quote in his obituary. He just died last fall in Chicago, and uh, it talks about how much he hates drywall. So there are not many flat spaces here. He was all about organic curves and this church's values, so we do speak our value in this architecture, by bringing the outdoors in and the indoors out. And just so you know, uh, there is a church, North Shore UU in Chicago, that he also designed. If you look at it, you'll see similarities. And I think maybe we should bring that minister here for our 50th. She did the eulogy, and it would be so interesting for her to walk in this space and go, huh, this is familiar. Your response. The windows in this space are lovely and terribly distracting. (laughs) (laughs) Um, We do try to work. We love our kids. (laughs) And, um, oh, there's a cardinal. Or... (laughs) Blessing 
Why every Sunday do we mention freedom to mention every oppression rather than freedom to mention every gift? So what this question is about is the invocation that I say every Sunday. And, um, and I feel like our worship service is a balance of words that you hear over and over every Sunday. So the words are the same, but we all bring our new selves to it. So that's why there are things throughout the service that repeat no matter what. Why innovate when we are the innovation? We're in a different place each Sunday. But the question is about, <clears throat> excuse me, oppression versus gifts. And I'd say one of the things we've been talking about this weekend is, are we a church that is willing to stand for justice? And I think if we don't speak that, if we don't give voice to it, then it can get lost. Yes, I think gifts are important, and the very next lines in that invocation talk about how much we value every single individual, which I think is about all the gifts we bring. And we often bring gifts as well as our complications, and some of our gifts are complications. Um, John Wolfe, of all souls, was often quoted, uh, and it turns out this came from a, a journalist, a 19th century journalist, about comforting the afflicted and afflicting the comforted. Comfortable. And I think that's the challenge we have. We're trying to console each other because this life is not easy, and we're always trying to challenge ourselves because our understanding of this world and what the challenges are is complicated. So... I hand it off to you. The next question is, how do we help our children understand homosexuality? We handle that just the way we teach children about sexuality, period. Developmentally. So what does that look like for a four-year-old? And what does that look like for a 16-year-old? Um, one of the things we do is we offer owls in our faith tradition on a whole lot which is all about sexuality, the lifespan, 
And I'll add to that, in this question, um, how do we help our children understand homosexuality, I think we're at a point in history where they actually have more to teach us. So if this question came from uh, someone middle-aged or older, I encourage you to ask that young person what they understand, because there are now cartoons, children's books, video games. They are they're growing up in a world where our heterosexuality is no longer the norm. Uh, they understand gender. They understand sexuality as a spectrum. They are not binary. So maybe the way to help your children understand homosexuality is for you to be as curious as possible and ask them their wisdom. The next question. Our children and youth indeed are our future. How do we include them more fully into the life of our church? Uh, I kind of said this at the 10 o'clock hour. I think if we begin asking ourselves in every single conversation we have about church life, um, does this include children? Does this include families? How can we make it family-friendly, children-friendly, and indeed recognize their wisdom? Hand it off to you. Want to add to that? Thanks, Charles. You, the next one's yours. Is that better? Better? Better. Okay. Um, the next question is, I have an ongoing concern. Hope is such a marvelous place. The physical setting, the family, the, fr- the family-friendly atmosphere, the open-mindedness of its philosophy. How do we share this and welcome new members and not lose their ideals if we become too large? I am a member of a large church. I don't know if y'all know that or not. It's called All Souls. It's down at 30th and Peoria. Um, and it's different there. I spent about 23, 24 years 
I think this work reviewing our, our mission and vision means clarifying our values so that we all can speak them uh, using similar language. So I think the more that we do that, then we won't lose our ideals, and whoever new comes will understand who and what they're joining and what they're attracted to. And I think growth that is healthy involves making sure that we keep trust open, that we're transparent and there's trust. So as long as we can speak our values and trust each other, trust each other to question them, then I actually have no fear about growth. I have no fear that we'll get lost or doesn't bother me. Let's move on to eight. How do you preach without notes? Do you rehearse, talk off the top of your head? It doesn't seem like it. <laughs> um, for those of you who don't know, most Sundays that the children are here, we have chapel downstairs. You do have to hold it right okay, there. Right there. Mm -hmm. If I pop, I'm sorry. Um, so I have chapel. Um, it's usually centered on a religious holiday, the theme of the month, something that might be going on with our community, so lots of things. Um, I study, believe it or not, I think. Um, I look at my own life experiences and what I've seen happen in other people's lives. That's where I come from. And I get this question a lot, how do I preach without notes? And I, um, I'm still working out how to, to do that effectively. But again, I read and plan and make outlines and rehearse. I rehearse on Fridays often, standing here, imagining you all. Or uh, the interesting thing about not writing and being tied tightly to a script is I rehearse while I'm biking. I rehearse when I'm walking the neighborhood. You, I'm frying onions and thinking them out. So it actually gives me more time to think and imagine. And uh, when, when I'm trying to do something complicated, I've used a device where I imagine giving the sermon and the logic of the sermon and tie it to a geographic place. There are people who give speeches who talk about this. It's a, an ancient Roman technique of I imagine different rooms I'm in, so I made this point, now I'm going to walk through the threshold into this room with different ideas so that hopefully they have a thread. So uh, still working on how to do that effectively, and you all have been gracious um, teachers for me, letting me experiment. Question number nine is, why do some people suffer through life while others get relatively unscathed? First, the big secret is nobody gets through unscathed. Some of us get more scathed than others. And I think it's just bad luck. I think things fall into place that we can't predict. I think circumstances that we interact with sometimes have consequences that we can't understand later. Um, it's just statistics I don't believe God is punishing us 
Um, if you believe in God, I don't think God has got a tick sheet. Oh, he was good today. She was bad yesterday. It just happens. That's what I think. It's why I'm Unitarian Universalist, because we are a tradition that allows for paradox and the fact that life can be beautiful and terrible at the same time and not have to resolve that tension and expect us to do, uh, it expects us to do the, um, the work of finding the good in the terrible. I can say more, but that's good enough. As a minister and a religious educator, do you provide one-on-one -on -one counseling? Absolutely. I give my cell phone number out. Um, I don't have specific office hours because I try to be available, but prefer that you make, if you have a lengthy conversation, prefer an appointment so that I can clear the decks and we have space and privacy. Um, and I will tell you about one-on-one -on -one counseling. I'm willing to talk about any and everything but I'm also not a professional counselor. So I think after two or three sessions, if talking and being heard, being listened to deeply isn't enough, then I keep a list of counselors and other resources in the city who are not Christian and religious based so that you're not expected to pray as part of your um, counseling session. So I hand off any really complicated issues. Three is kind of the max. If we've talked about it three times and it's not resolved, then it needs a professional. I do the same. Mine's more offhand um, than Kathy's might be, but I'm available too. So um, if you feel the need to talk about your child and or just as a parent, what's going on with you, or as a grandparent, we have some concerned grandparents in the room. Um, feel free to call me. I may not be able to talk to you right away, but I will get back to you. So, And I love doing that. And I, too, will also say, hmm, it might be time to have some therapy. Um, I've been there, and it's been very beneficial for me, so I'd encourage you to do the same. Ooh, I'll add to that, too. Part of being a minister is being like a good counselor, being in constant uh, counseling situation so that I'm working out my own issues ideally not on you all <laughs> next one's yours can I be sure my loved one went to heaven and if not is there anything I can do to help them uh, I've heard someone who's been in this pulpit say I'm kind of agnostic about heaven and I really like that. She comes uh, from a different tradition. But I like what she said that. And I will tell you what I know about heaven today. Nothing. <laughs> but I sure hope there is one. I want to see my son again. I want to know him. Mm -hmm. um, and he is still here with me. But I want to see him again. That's what I'm attached to, is his presence. Um, not even that so much, because I feel his presence. But his, him, recognizing him and interacting with him. 
So maybe I, like Sister Ellie, am a little agnostic about heaven, but I sure hope there is one. And I'll just say, I I don't have an answer either, but I certainly understand that impulse. And when my nephew died, uh, when he was a freshman at TU, I just remember that sensation of he was still standing at the dock, and we were somehow floating away. So it's impossible not to imagine where that person might be now. And I understand our religious human impulse to invent what that might look like. And sometimes that's helpful, and sometimes it's been incredibly destructive to humankind to picture some fantasy that's not helpful to who we are today. A couple of other things. Um, If you read the Bible, the Bible says that God is unknowable. If God is unknowable, then I am sure heaven is unknowable, and we cannot imagine what that looks like. Um, The other thing I will tell you is the Latter-day Saints say that um, there is a heaven, and the rest of the question is, is there anything I can do to help them? The Latter-day Saints actually believe that you can baptize uh, people after death because had they known the truth, they would have wanted that. And I know how many of you feel about that. I'm just telling you what I know. Um, And that because of that baptism, yes, they will go to heaven. There you go. There are two questions that are related, and even related to the one we just answered. Why do some people feel there must be an afterlife for their life to have a purpose? And then, is there an afterlife? And why must it necessarily be much different from this life? That's really an interesting question. And I'll just say, I, again, I can't uh, answer for sure. I know some here feel they have clarity about that. But I have to say, I don't. But what I appreciate about the, the notion of an afterlife or what happens after we die is the ability to take geologic or cosmic time Because I don't know about you, but I'm so caught up in my world and this here and now that I forget to think seven generations out. And I think the human impulse to think about the afterlife and those who are left behind is our effort to broaden our view of life and what we're doing here and now. Because what we do here and now does affect seven, 14 generations out. I think people think, feel a need to have an after, there is an afterlife is because we are attached, whether we want to be or not. And um, I don't think that our life here is attached to that afterlife. I think what we do here matters. Um, and if there's more to life than what we know, then I'm all for that. Um, and once again, I will say, if God is unknowable, if there is an afterlife, then heaven is unknowable. And I can't imagine what it's like. So I'm the classic Unitarian in doubt about that particular one. Why do you preach... 
about love but act out of fear? This was a question posed by a Unitarian about other denominations. Um, I think this question is challenging the authenticity of the minister in the congregation. Um, if God is love, as we're taught in the Old Testament, and we came away from the angry, vengeful God that we read about in the New Testament, um, then we've, as Kathy said earlier, walked through a door, and somehow there was a difference there. So I think that's inauthentic, and it's part of the minister's job and the lay leader's to bring the congregation to a different thinking about that. I don't think we accomplish anything out of fear. But we can accomplish a lot out of love. I'm going to read that question again because it um, feels like we live in an era where there is increasing amount of fear um, socially, politically, and the question is, why do you preach about love but act out of fear? And I find often in retrospect what I've said to someone, said in my own home, to family members, or said from the pulpit uh, may come out of fear. Not the fire and brimstone fear, but, oh, my God, I'm worried about us, and I hope... Um, so I, I, so there's, uh, And I've said this to my children. Yeah, I didn't do that very skillfully. <laughs> my anger, my rage, my whatever. Um, it, it, it came out of fear, but it actually came out of love. So I think the fear is rooted in love. And I think, Susan, the word she used, authentic. I try to be authentic. So when I preach out of fear, um, I, I look at that and reconsider what I'm saying and how I'm saying it the next time. Why do you believe in God small g or God large g? That's another question that came from Facebook, so not directly to me. And I just say, I remain agnostic. I have days where I am in love with God and days I wonder what's out there. And I don't know the answer. Um, I have experienced what I would say are spiritual things in my life. Um, and I know what that looks like for me, but I don't know what that looks like for you. And I'm more than willing to talk about it. I'll say one last thing about that question. That is something that people assume about ministers and religious educators. They assume we have a religious stance especially when we do interfaith work, I've discovered. Um, and I often don't dissuade them because it's complicated. It makes it easier to work with them if we feel like we're on equal footing. So here's the last question. What are the three things? It was ten. I took the liberty of changing it to three. What are the three things you wish all your parishioners would believe? And again, I think it's an outsider question about believe. Uh, but how I answered it is being part of a church community, 
coming, whether you feel like it or not, makes a deep difference, not just for you, but for others. So your coming matters to everyone else. So that's one. Two, it may take time, but it's worth learning to stay at the table, working through hurt and differences, accepting your side of any disagreement or misunderstanding. So I would like for us to believe in self-reflection, input from others, and ultimately being able to forgive ourselves and others. That's back to that, how do we grow and stay grounded when we learn to accept our own mistakes and forgive ourselves and others. And the third is to always think you still have more to learn, always, that we stay rooted in our humility. We don't have all the answers. Love matters. All kinds of love matters. You could be wrong. <laughs> and forgiveness means more to the forgiver than to the forgiven.